Good morning. Please look at our scripture passage from Matthew 13, 44 through 58. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me. Father, we come as people that are easily defeated, if we're honest, and easily defeatable, but you are the undefeated one, and hence our need for you. Jesus Christ is our one defense, our righteousness. Oh, how we need you. God, I pray that everyone here would feel deeply that need, that we would see the greatness of our sin because it's only then that we would see the greatness of our Savior. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I want to pray for one of our missionary partners, Grace Church and Sharjah that are currently having to travel some distance to meet due to COVID restrictions in the UAE. And we pray that you would open doors in Sharjah that they can meet. We pray that you would do something miraculous. Even this week, would you open a door so that the saints there wouldn't have to travel an hour to gather corporately? Would you grant them land? Would you give them favor like you've given favor in other parts of the UAE that they might have a place of their own? So we're asking that you would provide abundantly for them. Pray for Anna Samuel and his family and the other leaders there that you would be with them, that they would have just joy in the fact that they're your children and added an increased joy in the fact that they've been set aside to help your church mature. And I pray that you would be with them, but also with the congregation as they work through the book of 1 Corinthians, that you would continue to do what you promised to do and what you will do, and that is build your church. We pray for our president, that you'd give him what he needs to lead with competency and wisdom and righteousness. 
We want to give you thanks for hearing our prayers last week and through all, out throughout the week as we prayed especially for our sisters, Sarah and Tex. Thank you for answering prayers. Thank you for healing Sarah. Thank you for recovery. Thank that she's out of the hospital and home. And I pray that even today would be speedy recovery. And I pray that you would be with her in a special way as she seeks to equip the rest of our ladies through the book of Job as she's suffered so much, not only this week, but the last couple of years of trials that would use her in a major way to encourage the flock here at Southside. We pray for Tex as well, that you'd be with her as she begins therapy. I pray that her hope would be strong. Her love for you and your people would be deep. Father, we pray for the Dean now this weekend, that as they're exposed to solid saturation in terms of the Bible being taught over a weekend, that you would bless your word and use it ultimately to produce in our students and in the other students that will come a love for Jesus, a hatred for sin. Set them on the right trajectory through the weekend, we pray. Pray for Josh as he comes, that you would be with him, that you would use him to serve us well over the weekend. God, it's in your strength that we rejoice. In your salvation, we greatly exult. As the psalmist says, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear, says the psalmist. You will swallow them up in wrath and fire and will consume them. Father, may we be a people who take your justice seriously. May we not take ourselves seriously, but take you and the things of you with utmost seriousness. Help us, we ask, to live in light of the end. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, I was at a Simeon Trust preaching workshop this weekend. And one of the things the instructor said is that preachers waste too much time trying to be clever and creative with long introductions. So with that in mind, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. If you're using one of our Bibles there in your chairs, it's page 769. And we're going to look at four sections of this gospel. We're kind of taking you know, sections together that really could be preached as standalone sermons, but we don't want to be in the gospel of Matthew for eight years. We want to be about two and a half. So we're going to combine a little bit here and look at four sections of scripture. And the main takeaway is that life is short, eternity is long, and so we should focus our lives on Jesus Christ. Let's consider the inestimable value of the kingdom, the inestimable dread of divine judgment, the call to be a kingdom scribe and yet more rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, the inestimable value of the kingdom. That word, especially for you kids, inestimable, kind of hard to say, and it? Maybe you should have picked a different word, but I like it. And it means too great to estimate, too great to calculate. And we're going to see that the kingdom, its value is too great to calculate. Look with me at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Well, Jesus gives us a little bit of a, a word picture of what's going on here. We don't have a lot of details. Maybe the man was working in the field. Maybe he was just passing through. But as he's passing through here, he maybe stumps his toe on something. Looks back. Something's there. Maybe it's worth looking. Maybe it's not. He decides it is. And so he begins to dig a little bit and uncover whatever's going on here. And he realized, okay, I'm on to something here. He might have looked around, see if anybody was looking. And he continues to dig. And he quickly realizes that this treasure is of more value than everything he owns. There's a little calculation, covers it back up, and in his joy, goes home, sells all that he has, that he might come by that field, that he might get the treasure. We don't know what it was. Maybe it was someone's life savings. Maybe it was someone's inheritance. There weren't established banks. It was very common to hide your treasure. And so he stumbles upon it, and it's this treasure that he realized it's worth giving up all that you have to get this kingdom. Look at the next verse there in 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pearls in that day, like in our day, very much valued and so the kingdom is like a pearl seeker who stumbles on a very valuable pearl, goes, sells everything that he, get, that he could get that pearl. It's that valuable. It's worth losing all that you might get it. And Jesus said that's how the kingdom is. Now let me zoom out. We've hit this several times, but let me remind us about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God came in the first coming of Jesus. Sometimes we think that it's all the second coming, but it's not. We've seen that in Matthew. It's already and not yet. Jesus brings the kingdom in his first coming, but it won't be finally and fully consummated until the second coming. And what does it mean? It means the arrival of God's reign. And it comes with Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is God taking back his world. It really is a revolution. It's just a slow one. The sovereign rule, kingship, of heaven is invading the earth at last. It's what the people of God had been waiting for, and it's doing it through Jesus. I wanna, we're going to flip a little bit in Matthew this morning. Go back to chapter 3, verse 2. Notice how the messenger who goes before, remember the Old Testament prophesied that God was going to return to Zion, but before he came, he would send a messenger who would prepare the way. That's John the Baptist. And what is his message? Chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, turn from your sin and self and to God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Look at the next chapter there, verse 17 of chapter 4. Jesus has the exact same message. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Matthew says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's the good news gospel of God's kingdom, of God's reign. And again, it's the fulfillment of God's saving promises. Most notably in the book of Isaiah, listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. It's prophecy. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, O herald of gospel. That's the same word in Greek. Good news. Lift it up. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel, good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, here's the message, behold your God. So what is the good news according to Isaiah? What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's God's coming back. Remember the people of Israel were in exile waiting to be redeemed. And so the message of the gospel is God is coming back to redeem you. A little bit later in, chapter, in Isaiah chapter 52, we read this, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. All the same word, gospel. Who says to Zion, here's the message. What is the good news? What is the gospel according to Isaiah your God reigns. And so what is the gospel of the kingdom? It's the fact that God is coming back just like he promised he would to rescue and to redeem and restore his people and reign over them. That's the good news. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that God's coming back to restore his people. And he begins that in the first coming of Jesus. That's really important for us to get. Look at chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 10. Famously in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Chapter 6, verse 10. Well, let's just start at 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here it is. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom comes on earth in the first coming of Jesus. And the expectations were off. All of most of the Jews thought it would come in and just transform everything in a day, but that's not the way the kingdom is. Jesus has been showing us the mystery of the kingdom, the paradox of the kingdom. And he taught us just a couple weeks ago, Cody taught us this. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13 to learn about the nature of this kingdom. Look at verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. It's slow, it's progressive, it starts really small, barely perceptible, but over time it becomes overwhelmingly pervasive. And here we are, 2,000 years in. Who knows how much longer we have? I hope the Lord comes back while I'm preaching. But he may not come back for 10,000 more years. We don't know starts as the smallest of the seeds and grows to the largest of the trees. And I remind us of that to say this, this parable here, back to our chapter 13, this treasure that's worth banking your life upon is not only future. It is future. It's already not yet. In other words, that treasure is not just pie in the sky. There is glorious pie in the sky, but there's pie here too now. The kingdom is already not yet. Notice in this parable that they obtain the treasure and the pearl right then and there. It's worth it, in other words, in this age and in the age to come. Let me read how Mark puts it. 
in Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, speaking to Jesus, see, we've left everything and followed you. Peter feeling impressive and Jesus shows him that at the end of the day, he hasn't left anything. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. In this time, you end up losing nothing, mostly because of the, the community of the local church. But it's not that impressive, Peter. You're going to actually gain because to give is to gain in the kingdom of God. The first will be last, the last first. Jesus is worth it in this age and in the age to come. Remember how the disciples responded? Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus calls them, and what's their response? Do they consider it worth it to leave it all? Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boats and their father and followed him. He's worth leaving it all behind. He's worth losing it all if that's what God calls us to. As we sing in Martin Luther's hymn from the 16th century, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. A more modern hymn, how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. His blood our ransom and defense, his glory our reward. The sum of all created things are worthless in compare. For our inheritance is him whose praise angels declare. The value of the kingdom is inestimable. Second, the inestimable dread of divine judgment. Look at verse 47 of Matthew chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the Bible's got two authors. It's got the divine author and it's got the human author. And so as I'm studying Matthew, I'm looking for what Matthew's doing. And this parable is actually the exact same thing that Cody preached a few weeks ago. 
with the wheat and the weeds, it's the exact same point. And so as I ask myself, why is it here again? Why would Jesus and Matthew repeat himself just a chapter later with basically the same point? And I think it's because judgment is so serious. He says separate. That's really what the word means. Judgment is to separate. It means to divide. It means to discriminate. It's where this gospel is headed. Flip over to Matthew chapter 25, heading towards the end. What does the Lord of the world say? Verse 31. Speaking of that day, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Look down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Look at verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. On that day, God will judge all those who've not trusted in Christ with eternal torment. You know, people today hate this doctrine. It's never talked about in churches anymore. People hate the doctrine of judgment, even though it's on every page of the Bible, every other page at least. And even here at our Christian universities, I've heard of several actually. I've heard they're what's known as universalist. A universalist is someone who believes that everyone will be saved. In other words, that there will be no judgment at all. They don't like the idea of a God who would display wrath, which is the same thing as saying they don't like God because that is who God has revealed himself to be. God has made us in his image and we now have tried to make him in our image. And what universalists will do is say, I don't like a God who would judge, so I'm gonna make him like me, a God who won't judge. But that's not God. It's not the God of the Bible. But you know, it's nothing today actually that that's new. Judgment has been denied right from the very beginning. Genesis chapter three, verse four says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God, remember it said, it, he gave an ocean of yeses, every tree in the garden, just not one, or you will surely die. And what does the enemy come to do and says, you will not surely die. He's the first one to deny the doctrine of judgment. The very first doctrine denied in scripture is that of judgment. The enemy comes in and flatly contradicts what God says. He says, there will be no judgment. Universalism is satanic. Literally, it originates from the serpent. 
and it deludes people. And it tells them they're just fine how you are. You do you and you'll be fine and there'll be no consequences, which is actually hateful to tell people outside of Christ. The fate of those outside of Christ will be dreadful. Jesus describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. The dread of that day will be inestimable for those outside of Christ. Third, he talks about kingdom scribes. Look at verse 51. He says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So Jesus has been teaching and he asked them, have you understood? And they say, yeah, we've understood what it means. And here Jesus redefines what it means to be a kingdom scribe. Remember, scribes were those men who were trained, specially trained to interpret the law. And here Jesus calls his disciples scribes. We're all scribes now. We're all theologians, everyone in this room, even if you're not a Christian. Every human is a theologian. Why why do I say that? Because every human has thoughts about God. Every human has thoughts about other humans. Every human has thoughts about the world. Every human has thoughts about what's wrong with the world. Every human has thoughts about where we came from. Every human has thoughts about where we're going. Every human has thoughts about what that solution might be. We're all scribes and theologians. The goal is to be faithful. And Jesus here says that the kingdom scribe brings out not just the old and not just the new, but the new and the old. Of course, the Jewish scribes, as we've seen, they had no room for the new, did they? That's why they rejected Jesus. But Matthew has been a really good exemplary kingdom scribe because we've seen again and again how Matthew is showing the old and the new. That's why we've seen this phrase some 13 times, this took place to fulfill what the scripture said. Matthew and Jesus both are very zealous to show that the story of Jesus is nothing but the fulfillment and the completion of the story of Israel. Remember chapter 5, those programmatic verses? Turn there with me, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, as he's beginning the Sermon on the Mount, shows what it looks like for us to be kingdom scribes. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a shorthand way of saying the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word means to bring about that which they pointed to. For truly, verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament, which leads us to our fourth section, and that is yet more rejection of Jesus by his own people. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. 
But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus heads home, and what do they do? They just question him, don't they? Is this the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? By the way, that word for carpenter, it means more than just carpenter, probably construction worker. Jesus was a skilled craftsman. Joseph's not mentioned here. In a couple other places, Joseph's not mentioned. He probably died a little bit earlier. Probably wasn't around. So Jesus, being the oldest son, he would have been the one to run the, run the business. Jesus worked with his hands long, much longer than he worked for redemption. If you think about it, if he started at 15, he probably worked as a construction worker and then a business owner from age 15 to 30 and then begins his ministry. And so these people are like, wait a minute, usually construction workers are not distinguished teachers. Who are you anyway? Jesus encountered the same in the gospel of John chapter six. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Who does this guy think he is? In the next chapter in John, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man was, has learning when he's never studied? Look around. Aren't, don't we know these people? Aren't these his family members? These his brothers, his sisters? By the way, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. And so here we have Nazareth joining the ranks of what we've seen, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, rejecting the Jewish king. So it says Jesus didn't do many works there. Why? Very last verse, because of their unbelief. They were not persuaded like the man who found the hidden treasure that Jesus and his kingdom are worth it. That's really what God's looking for. You know, God's not looking for perfect people. God's not even looking for good people. There are none, Romans 3.10 tells us. God's looking for belief. God's looking for faith. And then that what Jesus is commended so often here in these latter chapters of Matthew? I mean, let's look at a couple. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. What impresses Jesus? Knowing that you're not impressive. There's no room for swagger in the kingdom of Christ. Only needy belief. Chapter 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus saw their faith and said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Look at chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Look at chapter 9, verse 29. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, be it done to you. Jesus is looking for those who believe him. Those who believe that he is who he is. He is who he said he is and he's able to do that which he said he would do. So what can we take away from these passages? I want to work in reverse order. See, Jesus is rejected here in his hometown. If Jesus is re rejected, what should the followers of Jesus expect? Rejection. John chapter 15, Jesus gives these sobering words. 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus, it didn't go well for him all the time. We shouldn't expect it for us to go well as believers in Jesus Christ. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was ridiculed. He was crucified. He was put to shame. One of the main ways that crucifixion was so effective wasn't just death. It was the most shameful death. And so, Christian, in America, in 2022, you've got to be ready to be shamed for being a Christian. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to him and despise the shame because we know what lies on the other side. Life is short, eternity is long. Second, we should be good kingdom scribes. We should bring out the old and the new and we should see the centrality of Jesus in the scriptures. One of the best ways to do this actually, if you're new to the conversation, is through some of our children's Bibles that we recommend. Jesus Storybook Bible, big picture. You can look on our website under resources. They help us see how every story whispers his name. We don't want to miss Jesus in the Bible. That was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. Again, what Jesus says to them in John, he says, you search the scriptures, primarily the Old Testament in this context. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they, the scriptures, that bear life about me. This book points forward to him. A few verses later in John 5, he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. This is a, one of my old pastor mentors from Franklin, Tennessee. He says, it's a hymn book, not H-Y-M-N, H-I-M. It all points to him. And so we need to read the Bible with Jesus' lenses on. Be good kingdom scribes. Third, we got to be prepared for judgment. We must, all of us, must live in light of the judgment to come. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.10, speaking to Christians, speaking to the church. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, of course, this isn't talking about our salvation. We're saved by faith alone. We see that from Scripture every week. But we will stand, all of us, before the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and our lives will be evaluated. I wonder how often you think about that day. I can assure you, not enough. Me either. How often do you think about the day 
that matters more than any other day on this life? Do you think about eternity? Do you think about the end? Do you live your life in light of it? You knew I wouldn't end a sermon without a Luther quote. He said, I got two days on my calendar. This day and that day. And that's what drives my life. Today and the day I'll stare the Lord face to face. Will he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? He won't lie. Let's live in light of that day. And maybe we're not sure. Maybe you're not sure that you're a Christian. Maybe you're not sure that you won't actually face condemnation. We must ensure that we're good fish, not bad fish. How do we do that? How do we know which camp am I in? How how can I be a good fish? Well, again, faith in Christ, faith and repentance, turning from sin to Christ. Maybe you've never done that. Today's the day, friends. You're not promised another. Life is short. Eternity is long. Acknowledge your sin before a holy God. Christ came to bear the penalty we deserve. You trust in him and turn from your sin. Your sins will be forgiven. No more condemnation. Your first step of obedience is baptism. Love to talk if that's you. For us who know that we're Christians, this, this reality ought to change us in so many ways. And one of the ways that ought to move us to share the gospel. We should be broken for the lost, burdened for the lost. And so it should move us to cast the net far and wide. Back to the parable of the soils from earlier in, the, in chapter 13. We scatter that seed all over the place, the seed of the gospel. We don't know what type of soil it's going to land on. That's not our job, thankfully. We plant, we water. It's God who gives the growth. Our job's just to cast the net. Flip back to Matthew chapter 4, 19. Remember what he said. We already read it. Let's read it again. How did he describe the call to follow him? He tells these first disciples in chapter 419, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a fisher of men. To follow Jesus is to be on mission with him. Those two aren't optional. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be on mission with him. And one of our motives, we have many more, but one of our motives is the reality of hell. What about this parable of the hidden treasure and pearl of great price? I think fundamentally we just got to know and we've got to believe he's worth it. He is worth it. It's worth losing it all for. And so, church, make the kingdom your top priority. What does that mean? Well, make God's kingship, his rule, his ways, his word, your top priority. Submit to his reign. Make his rule your rule. Or the way he described it, flip with me over to chapter 6, before, seek first the kingdom, right? He puts, he puts the world in its proper place there starting, let's read 25, such a great passage. Notice what he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? 
No, you have little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? All these worldly concerns for the pagans, the Gentiles, they seek after those things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Everything else is going to take care of itself. Sell it all to get the kingdom. I love these three words. We don't want to miss them. These three words in this parable of the hidden treasure. He sees that treasure and he goes in his joy and sells it all. It was a joy for him to lose it all that he might gain that treasure. It was better for him to have the treasure. Jesus is better. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Speaking of the word of the Lord, the psalmist says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. He's better, and you've got to believe that. Quit settling for less at the end of the day. Lewis famously said that we are like children. We're far too easily satisfied. We're far too easily pleased. We're like children who would rather make mud pies in a slum, not knowing that we could have a holiday at the sea. Take this world and give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. So church, pursue true joy. See, God's rule and our joy go hand in hand. His way is best. That's why the Sermon on the Mount starts the way it starts, where Jesus says again and again in those Beatitudes, blessed is the one, blessed is the one, blessed is the one. If you remember, the word blessed just means happy. It's what it means. Jesus is after our happiness. He just knows that his way is the only way to get it. It's happiness in him. Flourishing is the one who follows the Lord. Isn't that what you want? To be flourishing and fruitful. I love the vision that Psalm 1 gives us, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Two ways. Blessed is the man who walks. Blessed, happy, flourishing, fruitful is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Friends, this is the good life. This is the happy life. This is the flourishing life. This is the fruitful life. A fruitful growing tree rather than chaff that is blown by the wind and ultimately burned. And so church, go all in for Jesus. We don't want to be lukewarm. Jesus rebukes the lukewarm in Revelation 3. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm Christianity is the worst. Half-hearted Christianity. It's terrible. Nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. It's for the birds for two reasons. 
First, most importantly, it may send you to hell. You may think you're a Christian just because you say you have in name only, but you're not an actual disciple of Jesus. Remember chapter 7 of Matthew, some of the scariest words in the whole gospel, indeed in the whole Bible. Speaking of that day, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They said some things. They knew a little bit of things, but they didn't know the Lord. Lukewarm Christianity, nominal Christianity, Christianity that is not true Christianity. But second, for those who are actually regenerate, lukewarm Christianity is for the birds because it's miserable. And you know it. You have one foot on the side of the Lord, one foot on the side of the world. You got a little bit of Jesus, but not really enough to be satisfied in him. And since you have a little bit of Jesus, you feel guilty about being in the world and those temporary, temporary pleasures of sin that Hebrews 11 talks about. And so you just stay miserable. You're on the fence. Why don't you get off the fence and go all in for Jesus? Put it all on the table. Put all your chips in for him. You will not regret it. He is worth it. Life is short. Eternity is long. So let's focus our lives on the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we're so grateful to have your word breathed out by you, preserved for our edification. And I pray especially for the apathetic among us. It's easy. The world makes us drift without even knowing it. It's seeking to conform us. And if we're not alert, it will conform us. So I pray for those who are on the fence. I pray for those who are half-hearted that you, by your spirit, through your word, would wake them up. Would you move them to quit playing and be all in for you? Help them to believe that life is short and eternity is long and help us all to believe Jesus is worth it. We pray it in his name. Amen.